oh, how good it is to embrace his command, to prefer one another, to forgive as he forgives. When we live as one, we are sharing the love of the Son with the Father and the Spirit. Friends, may that be true of us this morning. May that be true. Would you open Scripture to the book of Acts, chapter 15? We'll be reading from verse 22 to verse uh, 35. If you did not bring your Bible this morning, we hope you would find a Bible provided in the chair in front of you. Uh, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, this is uh, for you to take home. Feel free to take it with you. Uh, you may find this passage on page number 924. And let's, let's listen carefully and thoughtfully to the reading of God's Word. As you are turning uh, your Bibles there, I want to remind you uh, that we are currently going through a series in the book of Acts. Uh, we are on Sermon 33. Uh, in this uh, book, and I don't know how long it'll be till we finish, but we are committed to take one passage at a time and work through it, and we pray that the Lord will continue to conform us as a congregation um, to the pattern that he has designed in Scripture for his church. May that be true of us. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Acts 15, 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We therefore send Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the thing things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of God for our hearts this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we thank the Lord for his word and ask his Holy Spirit to be with us. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy. It is a joy to be hearing your word afresh again to our hearts. What a privilege this is 
Lord, now we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would impress this truth on our hearts. Make it clear. Make it clear so that we may be willing to understand it and be, be willing to follow it. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. While the Jerusalem Council, this passage that we just read, marks the ending of this Jerusalem Council. We looked at the events of this council for the past two Sundays. Today we'll consider how the church in Jerusalem delivered the news back to the church in Antioch. John Stott, in his commentary, um, concludes by saying that this text, or in this passage, we see two victories. Two victories. A victory of truth in confirming the gospel, the gospel of grace, but also a victory of love in preserving the fellowship between Jews and Gentile believers. And this indeed is, is what is taking place in this council. Not only a protection of the gospel, but also a protection and a preserving of the fellowship of this gospel. And it's to this theme that I want us to look at this morning, that I want us to, to turn our attention, protecting the fellowship of the gospel. As we read this passage, did you notice how many details are included about the process of taking the response back to Antioch? Did you notice that? I mean, the, there's, there's inclusion about who they sent, the, the names, but also about the process they went about selecting who they should send, and about specifically the letter they wrote, and then about how the church received this news, and then how the, the, the convoy remained in Antioch a little longer to make sure that they not only read the letter, but they taught and confirmed by word of mouth what the letter said, and then they were sent back with a blessing of peace. What, why so much detail about this news of taking back the, the decision from Jerusalem to Antioch? Well, I believe that, that some of the details are given because of this emphasis on the importance of protecting not just the gospel, but the fellowship of the gospel. So this morning, as we consider this theme of protecting the fellowship of the gospel, I want us to consider four aspects that we see in this passage. Four things. First of all, the leadership. Second, the courage. Third, the four requirements that the church asked. And then finally, the blessing of peace. Let's look at, at each of these as we look at how the church in Jerusalem cared to protect not just the gospel, but also the fellowship of the gospel. First thing I want us to look at that's in the passage is the leadership. I have a question for you. And for the last two weeks that we've been looking at, at this passage, who is leading in this protection? Who's leading in, in protecting this gospel? Who's leading in protecting the fellowship of this gospel? Well, because the church is not just a human experience, because the church is not just a social reality, because the church is a reality where the divine will and the divine presence is manifested through the human experience, 
because of this mixture between the spirit and human activity, when we ask the question, who is leading in this protection, we must realize there are two answers. There's a human answer, and there's a, a divine answer. Humanly speaking, who is called to lead in protecting both the gospel and the fellowship of the gospel? The answer that we see from Scripture is that it is the elders or the overseers or the shepherds. Now, in Jerusalem, in the church in Jerusalem, especially at this particular time, besides the leadership of the elders of the church, we also see the leadership of the apostles because the apostles of the Lord were still around. We see this in verse 6. Go back to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. It was part of their responsibility to lead the church in protecting the gospel against false teaching. This protection of the gospel was not about a majority vote. This protection of, of the gospel was not about what people wanted. No. The apostles and the elders did not take a survey. They took a lead. They took a lead on these matters. Now, we no longer have apostles today. Not in the way that the New Testament apostles that were commissioned by the Lord, those who, whose qualifications had to be that they had to be seeing the Lord Jesus. Those kind of apostles we no longer have today. So who is now entrusted with leading in the protection of the gospel and in the protection of the fellowship of the gospel? And the answer is, it's the elders of each local church when describing the qualifications for elders or overseers in Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul wrote in verse 9 that one of the qualifications is that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, to be an elder, you have to have, or elders have to have this qualification. And listen to what Paul says next in Titus 1, verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Now I have a question for you. Who's supposed to silence them? Whose responsibility in a church is to silence this category of people? It was the elders. By giving instruction in sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. One of the key responsibilities of the elders of a church is to protect the gospel and the sound doctrine and the fellowship around that, go uh, that gospel. And this is what we have here in the Jerusalem council, although here we also have the apostles because of their presence. So Peter and James, this is what they have done. They have given instruction and have given clarity about this matter. When the council in Jerusalem sent their letter, notice who wrote it, who was responsible for it. Would you look at verse 24? Who wrote this letter? Who signed it? The brothers, both the apostles and the elders. 
This is who's responsible. Now, we have to understand their leadership, the leadership of the apostles and the elders, was not an independent leadership. It was still within the larger framework of the entire congregation. Would you look at verse 22? Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. A similar point is expressed in verse 25 where the elders state the unity of the whole congregation behind this letter. It says in verse 25, It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, and so on. The one accord happened not only among the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, but also among the church, among the members who affirmed to send these men. So in one sense, in one sense, the entire process, the entire process of sending back the answer to the church of Antioch is affirmed by the whole church. So that it's not simply one man, or it's not simply the leaders of the church who rule over the church, but we also see the church's involvement in this affirmation. This is, this is what theologians call the congregational church governance. This type of structure of, of human authority, speaking of human authority, uh, understands that all members of a local church are called to affirm the spiritual leadership and the spiritual direction provided by the elders of that church. Yet it's in the midst of, of that congregational affirmation that we also see a clear, unmistakable leadership role that is entrusted to the apostles and the elders of the church. But there's something else about this leadership. It's not just the leadership of the human agents that we see here. It's also the leading of the Spirit. Look at verse 28. When the elders write the letter, look to whom they attribute this decision. This is a very important little detail. Look to whom they attribute this decision. Verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden in other words, even though the elders and the apostles have, have given the leadership in this decision, even though the whole church gave its blessing in affirming this leadership, at the end of the day, this unity was not just a unity of the majority vote or even an, a unanimous vote of the people. Not at all. Decisions in church are not just about the majority of what the people want. It should be about what God wants. It should be about what the Spirit leads the church to do. People should seek God's approval, God's direction, not just to express their opinion or preference or see who's got the majority. In a Baptist church, this is challenging. In a Baptist church where we believe in, in the congregational structure of church governance, this is important for us to be reminded of. That's why, even in a congregational church setting, it's not purely a democratic process. Now, it includes some elements of it, but friends, dear Baptist brothers, it's not a democracy. 
and Baptist sisters as well. There are times in the life of the church when the majority is off track. There are times in the life of the church when the leadership is off track. There are times in Scripture when the majority was off. Uh, can I give you just one example? Remember the church in Antioch? I'm sorry, the church in Corinth? When the whole church took pride in embracing an unrepentant sinner as a member of that congregation, and the church did nothing about it but boast, and Paul had to write to them to rebuke the whole church, what about the, the seven churches in the book of Revelation when God rebukes five of them? They're all in the, in the wrong path. So there's, there's clear in Scripture that majority doesn't necessarily mean God's direction. This means that the unity needed to protect the gospel is not just a human unity. It's not just the protection of the leaders. It's not just the protection of the majority. It's a protection of and a unity guided by the Spirit. It's a unity with the Spirit. What does this mean for us? Well, it's crucial. This is why it's so crucial for a church to elect and to submit to leaders who are spiritual. It's so crucial for a church to have leaders who are known above all things their black suit, their strength is that they are spiritual leaders. So important. Can you imagine if, if, if the spiritual leaders of a church are not known to be first and foremost men filled with the Spirit? If that's not, I mean, they, they might have that too, but that's not their strength. Or can you imagine if the spiritual leaders of the church are not men who are first and, and foremost interested in the leading of the Spirit, but they might have their own agendas. How, how can such leaders lead the, the church in such a way that they would consider the unity of the Spirit? This is why I, I praise God. I praise God that He calls a local church to have a plurality of elders who are known first and foremost for their spiritual leadership, men filled with the Spirit, men able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to protect the truth of the Word of God. Now let me speak for a second about deacons. While all deacons in a church should be men filled with the Spirit, the offense of the deacon does not require men to be able to give instruction in sound doctrine or to protect the sound doctrine or the fellowship of the church around that gospel. Scripture makes this requirement to be clear for the office of pastors or elders or overseers. And such spiritual leaders of the church are given the charge to lead in such a way that what the church is called to affirm is the will of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Friends, regardless of your background in the past, can you imagine a church in which the members of the church trust that its elders are men who seek the will of the Spirit in all circumstances? Can you imagine a church in which the members of the church trust their elders 
to be guided not by personal agendas, but by the leading of the Spirit and by a deep love for that flock. So they want to preserve and protect the fellowship around the gospel, the fellowship around the, the teaching of Scripture. Can you imagine what joyful trust and protection the members of that church are able to experience if they have such qualified spiritual leaders? We need spiritual leaders whom you can trust to lead in such a way that they can say in all circumstances, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Wow, I pray that I pray that every church would have that kind of leaders. That they would lead the congregation in such a way that this would be true. Can you imagine how much trouble the churches would be spared if churches would, ins churches would ensure that this is a kind of leadership they elect and submit to joyfully and trustfully. This is the leading that we see in this protection. The second element we see in protecting the fellowship of the gospel is courage. Courage. The courage to state the truth. The courage to state the truth. The letter begins with a clear indictment of the teachers who went from, uh, from Jerusalem to Antioch uh, prior to this whole council. Look at verse 22. They start the letter by saying, Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. Interesting description. Interesting way of putting things. Uh, do you see what these elders are doing by stating things in this matter? They're not just clarifying some facts, but they're indicting the false teachers who went out from Jerusalem to Antioch. Now, for a second, would you please just imagine? Remember that in the church of Jerusalem, there were some members who were part of the party of the Pharisees. Remember? I wonder what they, what went through their minds as they heard that this is a letter that's being sent to Antioch. I wonder what was going on in their minds. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The apostles and the elders had courage to state the truth. Call it what it is. No hitting around the bush or using purposeful, ambiguous language not to get some people upset. You know, just don't disturb the fellowship. When the truth of the gospel is at stake, friends, preserving unity should not be our greatest aim. We should preserve the gospel at all costs. We should not preserve unity at all costs. Not when the gospel is at stake. Now, once the gospel is preserved, is, is, is upheld, then yes, the second step is preserve the fellowship around this gospel. But, friends, there is no gospel fellowship to be protected where the gospel is not maintained. There's no gospel fellowship where the gospel is not maintained. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, a preacher of the last century, said, if the choice was between the truth of the gospel and harmony in the church, the choice was for the truth of the gospel. 
he went on and said the following, and I, I was actually surprised when I read the following words, but here, here to his words. The church can live with disharmony. Some of you say, oh yeah, I've been there, I know it. It's, it's unfortunate when it occurs, of course. We, we don't want it. We try to avoid it when we can, but we can live with it. But we cannot live with it if the gospel is destroyed. We cannot live without the gospel. What we cannot live with is the destruction of the gospel, the disappearance of the gospel, the compromise of the gospel. And Boyce is so right about this. Fellowship is not to be fought at all costs. Fellowship is to be fought only where the gospel has been preserved, established, and secured, and upheld. This is why the ecumenical agenda is, is a dangerous temptation. It seeks to promote unity among various denominations or religions, even with those who have clearly compromised on the gospel. Friends, we have no obligation to uphold a unity with people who have compromised the gospel. If a church preaches a false gospel, what should you do? Well, if the leaders and the church will not correct it, especially after bringing it to their attention, you need to get out of there. It's your job and duty to bring it up to the attention of the leadership, to the attention of the, of the church, if you can, if the church allows for that. But if, if you try and there's, not, there's nothing, no openness to, to deal with that, then don't stick around. Get out of there. Now, that, that might sound harsh. That might sound harsh to hear, especially from us who feel good about fellowshipping. But friends, it's not nearly as harsh as what Paul said in Galatians 1.9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So even though this letter is seeking to protect the fellowship of the gospel, the letter is courageous and bold in declaring the truth about those who sought to mislead them from the gospel. There's a clear distancing of the church in Jerusalem from these teachers and those who profess a different kind of gospel. Friend, if you are a Christian, let me ask you, is your fellowship with other Christians a fellowship based on the truth of the gospel? Is it based on the common bond of having embraced Jesus Christ together? Is what unites you to other Christians Jesus Christ? Or is it just some social reason, some social factor. Now, if you see the gospel in someone's life to be compromised, would you have the courage to confront them? And if after confronting them, they seem to step away from the gospel deliberately and clearly and unrepentantly, do you realize that you no longer have a fellowship based on the gospel with that person? because the gospel is no longer mutually embraced. Do you realize that? Now, for those of you who perhaps are checking out Christianity and or are interested or are very, are very new to Christianity, you, you may have been really surprised to hear this idea of fellowship around the gospel. What does this mean? 
Um, quite honestly, even older saints um, who've been Christians for a long time uh, still need to be reviewed and reminded of what it means, what this fellowship is. To the, in a very broad way, and what comes across to most people, fellowship means socializing, hanging out with other people, a living life together in a community. Uh, and, and, and that's part of the, of, the, uh, of the meaning. But then you would say, well, why not just call it socializing? Why are we using these Christian terms or Christianese words? Well, because there's, fellowshipping is not just socializing. Uh, we can socialize with all kinds of people, and we should. But fellowship can only be experienced with people who uphold and embrace the gospel. Because it's a kind of relationship, it's a kind of bond that is based on this mutual embrace of Jesus, mutual embrace of the gospel. And for those of you who may not be clear or may not know what the gospel is about, I'd love to, to remind you and tell you what we preach every Sunday. What is, what is the, the basis of this fellowship, this gospel that you hear us talk about? It's the message of God, of how man are being reconciled or saved or brought back into fellowship with God. Because the Bible tells us that even though God created us in His image, even though we were created for a relationship with God, we broke that relationship by our disobedience, by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And because of that, the entire human race after that is now estranged, is now separated from God. The first thing God did or one of the things God did in that experience in Eden was to kick them out of the garden. Separation, a big deal. And that separation would be eternal, eternal, unless God would do something about it. And God did. God sent His Son, Jesus, to die, to take upon Himself the punishment that we deserve so that through Christ we can be restored back into fellowship with God. It's a fellowship with God that is the foundation of our fellowship with other believers. Friends, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, repented of your sin, turn to Him, embracing Him. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. Come and talk to me. But the reason why fellowship is a big deal is because it's, it's a relationship based on the gospel. Sometimes we're able to maintain, or all the time, we should be able to maintain that fellowship even when we no longer socialize. Because fellowship is not just about socializing. It's about that partnership. It's about that community that even when we no longer hang out, we are still in fellowship with other believers. That's why we can be in fellowship with missionaries who are overseas. We're, we can be in fellowship with other Christians who live in other cities because we have a covenant, we have a partnership in the gospel. So this is, this is the, the fellowship that the church is trying to clarify here. It's stating the truth about what this fellowship is and it's not. And with those who give up the gospel, who walk away from the gospel, there is no fellowship to be uphold. Don't worry about it. Be clear about the facts. Now there's four requirements that the church gives. And this is also part of, part of the, 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 the protecting of the fellowship of the gospel, at least in the first century, four requirements. Once the gospel has been protected by laying no greater burden on the Gentiles, no other conditions for salvation, now there, the letter states four requirements. Look at verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Wow, what a short letter. To the point. Now, the fact that these requirements deal at least, at the very least, with securing the fellowship between Jews and Gentiles in that time is pretty clear. Pretty, pretty clear. What is not clear is if Jewish Christians are no longer around us, are we still bound to follow these requirements? That is unclear. And let's, let's talk a little bit about each of these requirements and how to deal with this lack of clarity. The prohibition against food devoted to idols and the prohibition against sexual immorality is repeated several times in the New Testament. This is not the only place where we see it. Let me give you just two examples. You don't have to turn there. Just listen to the following two messages that the Lord gives to the churches in Revelation. Revelation 2, 14. But I have a few things against you, the Lord says. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's a, in just the same chapter, um, verse 20, Revelation 2.20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, and I will strike her children dead." How sad that the churches in John's time failed to live with what the Jerusalem Council declared earlier. Bottom line is, even though, even though these churches were not the initial reci uh, recipients of this letter, these two truths seem to be valid even for the churches of Revelation. They, these two requirements are, are binding for them too. For us today, the issue of food offered to idols is not a big deal. Our culture doesn't practice it. We don't have that temptation. But what about the temptation of sexual immorality? That's around us. Now, these days, we are lamenting, especially in light of what happened in Houston recently, about, about not having the, the liberty to, to speak what God has said about homosexuality. We, we, we're, we're getting uh, unsafe un about some of these things. And we lament the lack of freedom that might come about this issue. But I have a question to you. It's not just the, the issue of homosexuality that's, that's a challenge. Where, who has stopped the church from speaking against any other sexual sins? Because it's pretty clear we don't like to talk about those either. Why are we having a hard time to talk about those? But now when homosexuality shows up, we, we all get really concerned. We've been silent about sexual sins for a while. What are we expecting? The Lord is shaking us up. The, the, the command against sexual immorality is pretty clear. It's binding, even today. 
there's so many passages about that. Now, if friends, if there, there's more commands here, what about the other commands? What about the commands not to eat blood or not to eat food from animals that have been strangled? Well, some interpreters think that if Jewish Christians are not around, then non-Jewish Christians are not bound to follow them. Others claim that this requirement is to be followed regardless of whether or not Jewish Christians are around. Uh, for instance, uh, there are Christians who hold to this so that they would not eat rare steak. Uh, they would not eat any meat that actually has blood in them in, in, in fixing it. Uh, even Jehovah's Witnesses, who, by the way, are not Christians, um, even they take these words literally. They would actually take them so literally that they would not accept to have uh, blood transfusions. And they, they would have a hard time with any of these requirements because they, they take them that literally. So there are Christians who are convicted that these commandments, these two commandments, are binding even for us today. Now, it's really hard to differ differentiate on these last two commandments because there's no other place in the New Testament where these are brought forth, and we don't know if they should be applied even in non-Jewish contexts. But here's what's very clear. That if the fellowship between two Christians today would be endangered because of these two different convictions, then it's our duty to abstain. It's our duty to abstain. If the gospel is secure, if the gospel is clear, and these issues would be of such nature that would be divisive in, in a community, abstain from them so that the fellowship can be protected. And these requirements are not a burden. The Church of Antioch received the entire letter with joy. And so should we. So should we. Friends, if there's any reason that takes joy, your joy away as a result of reading this letter, come and talk to me. I don't understand why. This letter should be joyful for us as well. The protection of the gospel and the protection of the fellowship of the gospel uh, includes these requirements and, and we should not have a hard time with them just as the church in Antioch did not have a hard time with them. But there's a final piece and the last piece. This actually brings it full circle. There's a blessing of peace. There's a blessing of peace. Look at verse 33. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. Now the manner of sending these brothers back to uh, Jerusalem, uh, to Antioch, also could be um, interpreted or or translated, they were sent off with peace. They were sent off in peace or with peace. Both translations are very possible. This is an important detail. This is important because, remember, why did they come from Antioch in the first place? Because the peace had been troubled. Because of, because of the, this false gospel had troubled the minds of these believers. There's turmoil. Paul and Barnabas had debated with these teachers. The debate didn't end. They didn't, didn't, was not silent. So the church sent men to Jerusalem to figure it out. So now after it all has been figured out, the church in Jerusalem sends them to Antioch. They get the letter. They get the teaching. There's more preaching and teaching around that letter. And now when they have received it joyfully, the church of Antioch sends them back with peace. Peace has been restored. This peace is the peace that was possible 
only after the gospel has been secured. This is why what makes this peace possible is the gospel. When the gospel was clarified, the fellowship of the gospel was maintained. Again, John Stott says the unity of the gospel preserved the unity of the church. It should be this way. The unity of the gospel preserves the unity of the church. Where the gospel is not maintained, neither there should be unity maintained. Anything that threatens the truth of the gospel or the witness of the gospel needs to be confronted. But once the gospel is protected, so we should protect the fellowship of the gospel and do everything we can to make it secure by extending to one another the blessing of peace. That's why Paul, when he began all his letters, he began with this phrase, grace and peace. This is why when we conclude the services here every Sunday, I conclude with the phrase, peace be with you. The greatest thing we can do when we scatter from this place is to take the peace of the gospel with us. It's not just any kind of peace. It's a peace that we have through the gospel, the peace that we have with God, the peace that we have with one another. It is that kind of peace that we want to give you every time we scatter from this place because that's what the gospel does, friends. And I pray, I pray that every time we scatter, we give each other this peace. And this peace is not just lip service, but it's a truth, a true experience of what we experience with God and with one another. The blessing of peace is how this whole thing com- concludes. Would you join me in a final word of prayer? Oh, gracious God, we thank you that in your word you have given wisdom to the leaders of the church, the apostles and the elders, to give us a pattern of how to submit to the leading of the Spirit in such a way that they led the church to affirm this direction of protecting the gospel and protecting the peace of the gospel, protecting the fellowship of the gospel. Oh, Lord, we pray, would you give us the same leading of the Spirit? May we, may the leaders of the church, may we as a congregation be zealous in protecting both the gospel and the fellowship around this gospel. May our fellowship together be a picture, a display of what this gospel is able to do in our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.